Well, thanks, Denise, for a uh, very generous introduction. I've got to say it's the first time I've ever performed at a venue at which uh, Elton John and the All Blacks have also performed. So uh, it's with a certain degree of trepidation that I face you today. Um, can I, of course, acknowledge the Māori people on whose lands we meet today? Um, thank Presbyterian Support Northern and their CEO, Denise Cosgrove, for the generosity of bringing me out to New Zealand to deliver these lectures. Uh, and all of you for uh, taking the time uh, on uh, uh, your lunch, lunch break in order to talk about inequality and the importance of evidence-based policy. I've got to say, seeing New Zealand today has tended to be a pretty good predictor of what's likely to happen tomorrow in Australia. And New Zealand women won the right to vote nine years earlier than Australian women. Your country enacted same-sex marriage four years before we did. And in fact, you even gave Barnaby Joyce citizenship before we did. <laughs> so to be in New Zealand isn't just a chance to see the sunrise a few hours earlier, it's an opportunity to get a sneak peek into some of the things that might shape Australia's future. Uh, naturally, as a member of the Labor opposition in Australia, I'm keenly hoping that this year or next we'll see Australian voters follow your lead in electing a progressive government. I had the pleasure yesterday of speaking in Auckland on the topic of what Australia and New Zealand can learn from one another about reducing inequality. And today I want to focus on a specific policy area, randomised trials, and discuss how they might help us narrow the gap between rich and poor. My talk today will focus on a new book, uh, Randomisters, Our Radical Researchers Changed Our World, which is published in Australia by Black Ink. Uh, and is uh, coming out in the United States with Yale University Press in August. Now, you might think that some things are so obvious we don't need randomised trials to prove them. For example, if you want to discourage early pregnancy, ask teenage girls to care for a baby doll. It's programmed to demand attention at all hours. If you want to deal with juvenile delinquents, uh, you can scare them straight by putting them in jail for a day, so they see how tough prison really is. And what unemployed men most need is job training. Each of these statements sounds completely reasonable. Unfortunately, all three are wrong. In randomised trials, girls who you know, cared for an infant simulator for a week were twice as likely to become teenage mothers. Scared straight programs increased crime. And many job training programs for unemployed youths have produced disappointing results when rigorously evaluated. When it comes to tackling disadvantage, randomised trials don't just spotlight failure, they can also shine a light down new paths for addressing poverty. In 1958, psychologist David Weicker took up the job of being Director of Special Educa Education in Ypsilanti, Michigan. At that time, the schools were segregated, and all the African-American students in the town attended one primary school, the Perry School. Wyke had noticed that the school was run down. It didn't have a playground, it had a field full of thistles. And many of the African-American students end up repeating grades, entering special education, or leaving school early. Yet when David Wyke gave a presentation to school principals about these problems, they responded defensively. 
One sat with arms tightly folded. Others stood by the window smoking. A few left the room. When he pressed them to act, they said there was nothing they could do. Black students were just born that way. So Wykert came up with an alternative solution. As he said, because I couldn't change the schools, well obviously you do it before school. In the late 1950s, the only institutions that looked anything like preschools were nursery schools, focused purely on play. By contrast, Wykert was interested in the work of psychologists such as Jean Piaget, which suggested that young children's minds are actively developing from the moment they're born. But when it came to early intervention, he noted, there was no evidence that would be helpful, there wasn't data. So he decided to put Jean Piaget's theories to their first rigorous test. In 1962, the Perry Preschool opened for children aged three and four. About 100 children applied to enrol. Half were admitted, half remained as a control group. The selection was random, literally, made by the toss of a coin. Former Perry Preschool teacher Evelyn Moore remembers how the program pushed back against the prevailing wisdom that a child's intelligence was fixed and that many of the children in the community were, quote, retarded. But she saw something different. The children knew the names of baseball players. They recalled the words to songs. Their parents had hope. When Evelyn Moore visited the families at home, she saw they almost always had pictures on the wall of two men, John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. The preschool curriculum was highly verbal. Children visited a farm, a fire station, and an apple orchard, where they picked apples and cooked them into apple sauce. Months later in winter, they went back to the orchard to see the seasonal change. When Evelyn Moore asked the children where the apples had gone, one child reflexively replied, teacher, I didn't take them. The Perry Preschool program only lasted two years, but over the coming decades, researchers tracked the outcomes for those who participated and for a randomly selected control group. By the time they were in their 20s, those who'd been to preschool were more likely to own a car, own a home and have a steady job. They were also less likely to use drugs and less likely to be on welfare. By age 40, a quarter of those in the preschool group had been to jail. Significantly less than half of the control group who'd been to jail. The leading economic analysis of the program estimated for every dollar spent in Perry Preschool, the community gained seven to twelve dollars. By far the biggest benefit came from reduced crime, showing if you target early intervention at people with a 50-50 chance of going to prison, you can change the lives of participants at a very reasonable cost to the broader community. But while randomised evaluations have underpinned significant intervention in early years program, they've also shown it's not game over after the child's first thousand days. Schools matter, and indeed great schools can transform lives. One randomised evaluation looked at schooling in New York's Harlem district. Outcomes for young people in Harlem were dreadful. One study once found that the life expectancy for young men born in Harlem was lower than the life expectancy for young men born in Bangladesh. Cocaine, guns, unemployment, family breakdown created an environment where disadvantage was perpetuated from one generation to the next. Founded in 2004, the Promise Academy is no ordinary school. 
It has an extended school day with classes starting at 8am and after school activities often continuing until 7pm. There's remedial classes on Saturdays and the summer break is shorter than at most schools. The school operates on a no excuses model, emphasising grit and perseverance. It's assumed that every child will go on to university. Both students and teachers are heavily monitored with a strong focus on test score gains. With up to 20 applicants per place, the Promise Academy uses lotteries to allocate spots, an approach that allows researchers to compare outcomes across the two groups. So what do they find? One way to benchmark the impact of Harlem's Promise Academy is to note that the average black high school student in the United States is two to four years behind his or her white counterpart. Yet the mostly black students who won the lottery to attend the Promise Academy improved their performance by enough to close the black-white test score gap. As lead researcher Roland Fryer puts it, this overturns the fatalistic view that poverty is entrenched and schools are incapable of making a transformational difference. As Fryer puts it, the achievements of Harlem's Children's Zone are the equivalent of curing cancer for those kids. The randomisters are also endeavouring to improve teaching. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation recently conducted a randomised trial of coaching programs for teachers. Each month, teachers sent videos of their lessons to an expert coach, worked with them to eliminate bad habits and try new techniques. By the end of the year, teachers in the coaching program had seen gains in their classroom equivalent to several extra months of learning. The British Education Endowment Foundation has so far commissioned over 100 evaluations, many of them randomised, about what works in the classroom. Among the randomised evaluations that produce positive results are personal academic coaching, individual reading assistance, a Singaporean designed mathematics teaching program and a philosophy based intervention, encouraging students to become more engaged in classroom discussion. With so many evaluations, they can readily compare the size of the result. To get a one month improvement for one student, personal academic coaching costs 280 pounds. Individual reading assistance costs £209. The mathematics teaching program costs £60 and the philosophy-based intervention costs £8. So while all the programs worked, some were 35 times more cost-effective than others. There are also instances in which the Education Endowment Foundation has trialled programs that sound promising but failed to deliver. The Chatterbox program was created for children who were falling behind in English. Hosted in libraries on a Saturday morning and led by trained reading instructors, the program gave primary school students a chance to read and discuss a new children's book. It's the kind of program that warms the cockles of your heart. But unfortunately, a randomised trial showed it produced zero imp impact on reading abilities. Another Education Endowment Foundation trial tested the claim that learning music makes you smarter. Students are randomly assigned to music or to drama classes and then tested for literacy and numeracy. Researchers found no difference between the two groups, suggesting either that learning music isn't as good for your brain as you'd thought or that learning drama is just as beneficial. In a similar vein, a recent randomised trial of free school breakfast programs in New Zealand schools 
found that it reduced hunger rates by 8.6 units on the Freddy satiety score, in case you're curious. However, free breakfasts didn't improve school attendance, they didn't improve academic outcomes for low-income children. The educational randomisters were even evaluating how to get more low-income children to university. In Ohio and North Carolina, researchers worked with tax preparation company H&R Block to identify low-income families with a child just about to finish high school. Half the families were randomly offered assistance in filling out a financial aid application form. With the H&R Block expert there, the process took only about eight minutes. Two years later, kids whose families had received that eight-minute assistance were a quarter more likely to attend university. How's that for getting good bang for your buck? And because children whose parents didn't attend university often lack basic information about the college application process, other small interventions can have large impacts. In Ontario, a three-hour workshop for Year 12 students raised college attendance by a fifth relative to a randomised control group. In regional Massachusetts, peer support by text message raised the odds that Year 12 students would attend college. For the most affluent, it doesn't matter much where the government works. They can rely on private healthcare, private education, private security. They're less likely to be unemployed and have family resources to draw upon in hard times. For the top 1%, dysfunctional government is annoying, but not really life-threatening. But for the most vulnerable, government can mean the difference between getting a good education or struggling through life unable to read or write. Those who depend on government depend on knowing that the programs government delivers actually work. In Melbourne, the Sacred Heart Mission has been working closely with long-term homeless people since 1982. A few years ago, the organisation proposed to trial a new intensive casework program targeted at people who'd been sleeping rough for at least a year. When they pitched the idea to their philanthropic partners, one donor urged they'd be evaluated through a randomised trial. Guy Johnson, who worked in community housing and who would eventually conduct the research, was pretty sceptical at first. People in the community sector, he told me, freak out at the word experimental. They prefer to select participants based on need, not chance. But Johnson came to regard randomisation as not only the most rigorous method, method for evaluating the program, but also the fairest way of determining who got the service. The Journey to Social Inclusion experiment was Australia's first randomised trial of a homelessness program. For the 40 or so people in the, in the treatment group, it provided intensive support from a social worker who was responsible for only four clients. That caseworker might help them find housing, improve their health, reconnect with family and access job training. And then there are another 40 people in the control group who didn't receive intensive support. So what do we expect from the program? If you're like me, you might assume that three years of intensive caseworker support would see everyone in the treatment group healthy, happy and gainfully employed. But by and large, that's not what the program found. Those who were randomly selected into the program were indeed more likely to have housing and less likely to be in physical pain. 
But journey to social inclusion had no impact on reduced drug use, no impact on improving mental health. And in fact, those who received the intensive support were more likely to be charged with a crime. Perhaps the researchers suggested to me, because when you've got stable housing, it's easier for the police to find you. <laughs> At the end of the three years, two people out of 40 in the treatment group had a job. Same number as in the control group. So sure, it's disappointing that the program didn't bring more participants back into mainstream society. But it's less surprising when you begin to learn about the people it seeks to assist. In many cases, we're talking about people who were abused in childhood. The mother of one participant used to put Valium on the child's breakfast cereal. Most had used drugs for decades, and they were used to sleeping rough. Few had completed school or possessed the skills to hold down a regular job. If they did have children for their own, more often than not, they'd been taken away by Child Protective Services. So journey to social inclusion is a reminder of how hard it is to turn around the living situation of the most disadvantaged. If you've been doing drugs for decades, your best hope is probably a stable methadone program. If you're in your late 40s with no qualifications and no job history, a stable volunteering position is probably a more realistic prospect than a steady paycheck. And unless we rigorously evaluate programs designed to help the long-term homeless, there's a risk that people of goodwill, social workers, public servants, philanthropists, will fall into the trap of thinking that it's trivially easy to change lives. Sure, there's plenty of evaluations of Australian homelessness programs that have produced better results than this one. But because none of those evaluations was as rigorously conducted as this one, there's a good chance they're overstating their achievements. Blockbuster movies are filled with white knights, magic bullets, moonshots and miracles. But in reality, as I'm sure many of you know, positive change doesn't happen suddenly. From social reforms to economic change, our best systems have evolved gradually. Randomised trials put science, business and government on a steady path to improvement. Like a healthy diet, the approach succeeds little by little through a series of good choices. The incremental approach won't change the world overnight, but it will over a generation. Randomised trials flourish where modesty meets numeracy. As British randomister David Halpin puts it, we need to turn public policy from an art into a science. That means paying more attention to measurement and admitting that our intuition might be wrong. As sociologist Peter Rossi used to put it, the better designed the imp impact assessment of a social program, the more likely the resulting estimate of a net impact to be zero. Rossi's law doesn't mean we should give up the hope of changing the world for the better. But it does mean we should be very skeptical of anyone peddling panaceas. The belief that some social programs are flawed should lead to more rigorous evaluation, more patient sifting through results till we find a program that works. The best randomisters are passionate about solving a social problem, yet skeptical about the ability of any given program to actually deliver the goods. Launching an evaluation of our organisation's flagship program, Read India, Rukmini Banerjee told the audience, and of course, the researchers may find that it doesn't work. But if it doesn't work, 
we need to know that. We owe it to ourselves and the communities we work with not to waste their and our time and resources on a program that doesn't help children learn. If we find this program isn't working, we will go and develop programs that will. Randomised trials don't have to be expensive or time consuming. A firm in the United States offered employees up to $750 to quit smoking for a year. Those randomly chosen for the program were 10 percentage points more likely to quit. The German government in 2010 posted out a cheerful blue brochure to over 10,000 people who'd recently lost their job. Blieben Sie active, it said, stay active. And it urged unemployed people to uh, stay engaged in their community, continue applying for jobs. It cost less than one euro to print and post and boosted earnings in the target group by an average of 450 euros. If you've got another social program with a 450 to one benefit cost payoff, I'm very keen to hear about it. In 2013, the Obama White House, working with a number of major foundations, announced a competition for low cost randomised trials. And their aim was to show that it was possible to evaluate social policies without spending millions of dollars. They had 50 entries and chose three winners, including a federal government department planning to carry out unexpected work workplace health and safety inspections, and a Boston non-profit providing intensive counselling to low-income youth who were hoping to be the first in their family to graduate from college. Each evaluation cost less than $200,000. The competition continues to operate through the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, which has announced that it'll now fund all proposals that get a high rating from its review panel. So why don't politicians commission more randomised trials? When parliamentarians are probed on their misgivings, the chief concern is fairness. Half of all Australian politicians and a third of British politicians worry that randomised trials are unfair. As medical writer Ben Goldacre points out, we need to get better at helping them to learn more about how randomised trials work. Many members of parliament are worried that randomised control trials are unfair because people are chosen at random to receive a new policy intervention. But actually that's exactly what happens with pilot studies, which have the added disadvantage of failing to produce good quality evidence on what works and what does harm. Rejecting randomised trials on the grounds of unfairness also seems at odds with the fact that lotteries have been used in advanced countries to allocate school places, housing vouchers and health insurance, to determine ballot order, to decide who gets conscripted to fight in war. Indeed, when I was out for my morning run this morning, I saw a, a lottery being offered by the New Zealand government uh, for people who log on to the tax website to check for, check for their refund. We're already running many of these uh, uh, randomised experiments, the key is to garner the learnings from them. Now, one way I found useful to think about the ethical issue in randomisation is it turns on how confident we are in a program's effectiveness. Adam Gamoran, who's a sociologist at University of Wisconsin-Madison, agrees that if you're confident that a program works, it's not ethical to conduct a randomised trial. But he then flips it. And he says, if you're ignorant about whether a program works and a randomised trial is feasible, it's unethical not to conduct that randomised trial. And just as modesty is a great ally of randomised trials, overconfidence can be their enemy. 
the more certain experts are of their skill and judgment, the less likely they are to think they need to use data. Indeed, we know from a range of studies that overconfidence is a common trait. 84% of Frenchmen think they're above average lovers. 93% of Americans think they're better than average drivers. 97% of Australians rate their own beauty as average or better than average. <laughs> In human evolution, overconfidence has turned out to be a pretty successful strategy. Indeed, in our own lives, excess confidence can provide some sense of resilience. It lets us take credit for successes and avoid the blame for failures. Problem is, we live in a world in which failure is surprisingly common. In medicine, only one in 10 drugs that looks promising in the lab ends up getting approval. In education, only a tenth of the randomised trials commissioned by the US What Works Clearinghouse produce positive effects. In business, just a fifth of Google's randomised experiments actually help them improve the product. Rigorous social policy experiments find only a quarter of programs have a strong positive effect. Once you raise the evidence bar, a consistent finding emerges. Most ideas that sound good don't actually work in practice. So how do we institutionalise randomised trials? In 2010, the British government became the first to establish a so-called nudge unit to bring the principles of psychology and behavioural economics into policymaking. The interventions were mostly low cost, they're just tweaking an existing mailing. And they were tested through randomised trials wherever possible. In some cases, the randomised trial just took a few weeks. Since its creation, the British nudge unit has carried out more randomised experiments than the British government had previously conducted in that country's entire history. Following the British model, nudge units have been established by governments in Australia, Germany, Israel, Netherlands, Singapore, the United States, and are actively being considered in Canada, France, Finland, Italy, Portugal, the United Arab Emirates. In federal systems, another practical way that governments have encouraged randomised trials is by the national government building randomised tri trials into state grants programs. For example, the US Second Chance Act, dealing with strategies to facilitate prisoner re-entry into the community, sets aside 2% of program funds for evaluations that include, to the maximum extent possible, random assignment, and generate evidence as to which re-entry approaches and strategies are most effective. In a unitary system like New Zealand's, a similar approach could be taken where grants are being distributed to local governments or to non-government organisations. The exercise is called the fist. Young men are split into pairs. One's given a golf ball, the other's told he has 30 seconds to get the ball. Immediately the students start grabbing, hitting and wrestling. After the time's up, the teacher asks why no one asked for the ball. He wouldn't have given it, said one. He would have thought I was a punk, said another. Then the teacher goes to those who were making the fist who were holding the golf ball, and asked how they would have responded to a polite request. Oh, I would have given it. It's just a stupid ball, one of them says. The young men from inner city neighbourhoods are participating in a crime prevention program called Becoming a Man. The goal is to shift teenagers from acting automatically to thinking deliberately, recognising that the right strategy on the street 
might be the wrong approach in the classroom. For example, a young man in a high crime neighbourhood who complies with requests like, give me your phone, might be seen as a soft target for future crime. By contrast, if the same young man doesn't comply when the teacher says, give me your phone, he might get suspended from school. So becoming a man doesn't tell youths never to fight. Unlike children in afflu affluent suburbs, teenagers growing up in high poverty neighbourhoods might, might need to act tough just to stay safe. The role play exercises encourage teenagers to choose the right response for the situation. Making eye contact could be fatal when walking past a rival gang member. But if you're in a job interview, it's essential. Based on cognitive behavioural therapy, becoming a man aims to get youths to slow down, judge the situation, deliberately choose whether, whether to comply, argue or fight. And to find out whether it works, researchers in Chicago carried out two randomised trials in which teenagers were randomly assigned to becoming a man program or after school sports. Becoming a man cut arrests by a large amount, between a third and a half. Some researchers now think that reducing automaticity, uh, that tendency of young men to instinctively lash out, might actually do more to improve the lives of young men than standard academic remediation, or indeed job training. As one participant put it, a boy has problems, a man finds solutions his problems. Thanks to the randomisters, it looks like programs based around cognitive behavioural therapy are a valuable tool for communities seeking to address gang violence. Over the course of the 20th century, randomised trials have changed healthcare into a profession uh, that once relied on eminence-based medicine and now relies on evidence-based medicine. In the corporate world, companies like Netflix, Coles, United Airlines, Amazon and Google have built randomised trials in their business model. Intuit founder Scott Cook says he aims to create a company that's buzzing with experiments. And whatever happens, Cook tells his staff, you're doing right because you've created evidence, which is better than anyone's intuition. If you've used the internet today, congratulations, you were probably part of a, a number of randomised trials that are buzzing across the internet. Yet, when it comes to social policy, the vast majority of programs designed to help the most vulnerable are grounded more in greybeard beliefs than empirical evidence. The alternative to rigorous evaluation is often to ask the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. With inequality in many advanced countries at a post-war high, I reckon it's time we raise the evidence bar. At a time with government budgets under pressure, there's no excuse for continuing to fund programs that don't work. But conducting more randomised trials isn't an excuse to give up on the problem. We don't abandon the, secure, the search for a cure for cancer just because most cancer drugs to emerge from the laboratory don't make it through clinical trials. And similarly, the goals of cutting crime, raising test scores, achieving full employment should be pursued even if a specific program comes up short. The more we ask, what's your evidence, the more likely we are to find what works and what doesn't. By evaluating social policies, discarding those that don't work, boosting those that do, 
government can have a far greater impact on reducing poverty. So an experimenting society is more likely to end up a more equal society. <coughs> Scepticism isn't the enemy of optimism. It's the channel through which our desire to solve big problems translates into real-world results. Given the chance, randomisters can deliver a more equal world, one coin toss at a time. Thanks very much.